Hello and welcome back for episode 30. Of Sequel Pitch, the podcast where four film enthusiast friends review movies that don't have sequels and have a bit of a contest to see who the host thinks has the best idea for one. My name is Drew Toynbee. It is my super duper pleasure to be back hosting this week. And just before we get started, we all wanted to say a really massive thank you to everyone who has listened to all of our episodes up to episode bloody 30. Um, we thank you to all of our listeners here in the UK and literally around the world, people who are listening in Singapore, Brazil, Canada, Switzerland, Germany and America, where we've got we've got people listening pretty enthusiastically in Wisconsin and South Carolina and people in Pennsylvania, California, <laughs> Missouri, Florida, Illinois, Minnesota and Rhode Island. So thank you to Way. all of you. It's really, really awesome. Um also, thanks, guys. If, thank if you. you fancy, yes, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank Who you. Who are you? Thank you. Let yourselves known on Twitter. <laughs> God damn it, someone speak to us on Twitter. Yeah, we've been begging people, <laughs> begging you to speak to us on Twitter, and no one does, and it's fine. But if you don't want to speak to us on Twitter or Instagram or anything, then could you please, if you have the facility to do so, give us a review on Apple Podcasts? If you drop us a review, we will read them out and we'll say thank you very much. Um, it really helps well with our visibility and we want to keep doing this and we want to find more people who might enjoy it and have some fun with it. So thank you, everyone. Episode 30. Here we go. Yeah. So joining me for episode 30 to discuss today's movie and pitch me their sequels are the cool, collected detective, Andy Henry. I have a donut in a, in a donut. <laughs> was, that, was that good or bad? I that, don't know. It was, that was passable. Donut it was, was a hole. Serviceable. Donut. All right. Donut. Uh, we have the kind-hearted nurse who is definitely hiding something, Matt Rushton. Ransom! <laughs> Is that really ransom? <laughs> that was, that that was, was also that also serviceable, serviceable, yeah. um, and of course the very special guest in the room, waiting for the perfect moment to prove that he is the smartest person on the podcast. Jordan King's back. Makes no damn sense. Ooh. Compels me though. <laughs> <laughs> Jordan, how the devil are you? It's very good to have you back. I am. I am doing very well. I'm very glad to be back. Uh, I I have been vigorously campaigning for a Knives Out episode and dropping not so subtle <laughs> hints that anyone could have figured out for, for my involvement in some capacity. So uh, as far as I'm concerned, mission accomplished. I am back, and you can't get rid Absolutely. of me. Absolutely. Jordan's 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 given away the mystery. We, I mean, if you listen to last week's episode, we gave away the mystery last week when we picked the film. But we have moved on from spookiness, and but we're still dealing with some murder, um, some deception, and some good old-fashioned shenanigans. Because we watched 2019's Knives Out from director Ryan Johnson and starring bloody loads of people, um, including Daniel Craig, Anna Darmus. Lakeith Stanfield, Jamie Lee Curtis, Michael Shannon, Don Johnson, and the inimitable Christopher Plummer. So, before we get into our review, um, just in case any of our listeners haven't seen the movie, we do a reasonably quick but definitely no longer 60-second summary of the movie so that you've got a broad idea of what we're talking about when we're talking about our sequels. So, obviously, full spoilers ahead. 
with the caveat, like, watch this film. We're going to discuss it in a lot of detail, but no matter how much we said, it will not match up to watching this film. Go watch it and then come back. But if you've already seen it and you fancy a refresher, I'm going to start the... This is going to be a long one. I'm going to start it. Okay, here we go. Right, okay. I'm going to do this as fast as I can. Big breath. Now, how many breaths? In one breath. No, that's... Oh, Jesus Christ. Okay. It has been a week since wildly successful mystery writer Harlan Thrombey apparently died by suicide, slitting his own throat the night after his 85th birthday party with almost his whole family asleep downstairs. But now, just after the funeral, the police are back asking more questions. And with them is Daniel Craig's private detective, the last gentleman sleuth, Benoit Blanc. Through the questioning, we meet Harlan's family and staff, learning that Harlan had a difficult relationship with the family. Linda, his beloved eldest daughter, and her slimy husband Richard. Their son Ransom is mentioned but not in attendance. Joni, widow of Harlan's deceased son and her daughter Meg. Walt, Harlan's youngest son, with his wife Donna and 16-year-old son Jacob. Through the interviews, the adults all snipe at each other behind each other's backs, wondering why they're being questioned again. Then we meet the staff. We meet Fran, the housekeeper, and finally Harlan's personal nurse, Marta. When Marta is questioned, we get to the truth of the matter, and we flash back to into her mind and see what happened. Harlan knocked over his medicine bottles that night, causing Marta to think that she had administered a fatal dose of morphine, and her kit was missing the vital antidote provided for just that eventuality. Harlan, knowing that Marta's mother is an undocumented immigrant who would be found out if Marta were investigated too closely, immediately puts his murder mystery writer's brain to use and concocts a plan to shield Marta from any suspicion. Marta must pretend to leave the party, sneak back in, climb up the outside of the house to reappear downstairs briefly in Harlan's robe, and then finally escape. And before she can argue further, Harlan slits his own throat, forcing her to put the plan in motion. After this point, the movie spends time with Marta trying to hide the evidence of what she did from Benoit Blanc. And at, but, but then, at the reading of the will, it's revealed that Harlan was leaving everything to Marta. And eventually, it's revealed that Harlan's grandson, Ransom, was the one who really wanted to kill him. Harlan had told him at a party, at the party, that he'd changed his will and planned to leave everything to Marta, so Ransom switched the labels on the medicine bottles so that it would appear that Marta killed Harlan and she would lose the inheritance. But, once it became clear that Harlan's death was going to be ruled a suicide, Ransom hired Benoit Blanc so that he would discover what Marta did. Blanc eventually pieces together the entire series of events. He reveals to Mar that Marta actually gave Harlan the correct dose of medicine because she could tell the two similar liquids apart instinctively by sight without even reading the labels. Um, but of course, she believed that she had accidentally poisoned him because Ransom had switched the labels. Harlan killed himself to save Marta, knowing that she would look like she killed him for the inheritance because he'd changed her will without her knowing, and as well as to protect her mother. Unfortunately for Ransom, Fran, the housekeeper, noticed him returning and tampering with the evidence during the funeral to switch the labels back and worked out that he was actually the killer indirectly. Fran tried to blackmail Ransom, um, but he killed her and then decided to try and frame Marta for her murder, as his previous plan had failed, and that would also remove her from the inheritance. In the end, Marta and Blanc trick Ransom into confessing to Fran's murder by making him think that she, she survived the attempt. And finally, Ransom is arrested and Marta seems to take on her inheritance. Good lord, that was like five minutes long. I'm really sorry about that. <laughs> that was well impressive. That was, a, that was a long breath, I'll give you that. <laughs> um, so, the summary is not like in the order that it happens in this like twisty turny movie and there are reveals and 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 skullduggery and amazing stuff in there um but that would have been at least 10 minutes long and no one wants that so again 
even if you have seen it, just go and watch it again and then come back and see what we think of it. Um, so first, let's go around and do high level thoughts so that everyone knows where everyone else is coming from and then we can all get into the nitty gritty of it. So um, Jordan, as our guest, would you like to, without giving your score, tell everyone broadly what you think of this film? Uh, well, I, I was lucky enough to, to watch it at the London Film Festival in 2019. Um, and it was my most anticipated film at that festival. Like detective fiction, murder mysteries is like that's that's like heroin to me. Absolutely can't get enough of it. Like the Shield Hammer, Agatha Christie, like all of the like Paul Auster's New York trilogy. All of that stuff is just like I can't get enough of it. Um, it is safe to say that having watched Knives Out at this point six times. Um, I am, broadly speaking, fond of what Ryan Johnson did with the film. <laughs> I will not say more for now. <laughs> okay. Um, Matthew? I guess I, I wasn't at the London Film Festival in 2019, which <laughs> sadly. Very jealous. Um, however, yes, I can also say that, broadly speaking, I'm a fan of this film. Okay. And Andy? I was trying to sneak into the London Film Festival, but um, <laughs> I, I, I also like this film. I was one of the people who saw S the Last Jedi and came away and was was a bit worried, but was pleasantly surprised. Wait, you were worried about? So I saw Last Jedi. Last Jedi, I didn't like it. And right. I was a bit like, so you were worried about this? this okay. Yeah, because yeah. like a murder mystery. Uh, I thought it was. Uh, Okay, we'll go on later. Sorry. Okay, no, that's fine. We'll um, we'll have to have a uh, a separate discussion about your thoughts on the Last Jedi another time. Um, yeah, and and for me, I I am I I got to this film a bit late, and I kind of, I'd seen I'd seen trailers, and I thought it looked really interesting, but um, I end of twenty nineteen was a pretty busy time, um, because I was I had just started speaking as a new dad. And doing that regularly and, and having some health complications and things. Um, so I didn't make it to the cinema. And then just all of the film critics who tend to have similar responses to films that I do were like, this is the this is the film of the year. Like, the, the, how have you not seen this? And it came to streaming quite quickly and I rented it um, to watch over Christmas and it made my Christmas. It was my first Christmas with my infant son, and this was one of the highlights. So <laughs> that 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 should tell you what I think. Um, so yeah, there's hopefully it doesn't I, tell us about your son. Not the son and all that. You're like, <laughs> no, exactly. That's <laughs> not a bad comment on <laughs> push this baby yeah, away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I give it one star, and everyone's like, ooh, <laughs> ooh, no. Um, but yeah, I open the floor uh, at this point. Talk about what you want to talk about. I know Andy's got some notes that he wanted to cover that might be, that will certainly be interesting, but I've got some interesting facts, but I just want, I just want to throw it out there. Let's go. Let me quickly uh, just clear up this uh, Last Jedi thing. So yeah, I wasn't a fan <laughs> of Last Jedi because I just thought it was a mess, tonally and story and all that lot. So having, knowing Ryan Johnson was going to make a murder mystery, I was a bit like, oh, I'll still, I'll still see it and all that lot. But I was a bit like, oh, I'm, you know, I haven't got high hopes for it. And then it did kind of upset me when we, because I was a bit like, oh, it's, it's, you know, it's the newest who. I don't know the last time we had a who done it, and like a good who done it. 
Um, so and an original like, one as well. Yeah, and I was really waiting for like to fire, you know, for all the clues to come in all through the film, and then to have my own like judgment of who I think did the murder. And then to like to have a almost reverse who done it. I was a bit like I was disappointed, I guess, for like the first thirty seconds, and I obviously enjoyed it. But I was a bit like, oh, she did it, I guess. And I was <laughs> like, oh, it's more of like her covering her, covering her tracks. And well, stuff like that. yeah, but... that's that's the really fascinating thing is mm. they they set it all up so perfectly to be a whodunit and yeah. then it's like it's the end of act one and they're like oh no no she she did it mm. i really thought <laughs> it'd be like the new clue and i was gonna be like oh it'd be awesome but no i say it, i still liked how it turned out but, um i just really i haven't seen a good whodunit in a while and i was just wanting to see you know a proper I was just—I think that makes a comment on where we're at as an audience in the 21st century, though, man. Like, you could really try and drag it out, but I think Ryan Johnson was so clever and the writing team was so clever that they're like, "We could do that, or we could just tell you one of the major hooks, make you go right, okay, you've given us that in Act One. Where the fuck are you going with in with it in Act Two and Three? Because oh, we've yeah, got yeah. the yeah, classic who does it. It's not something you expect, definitely no. not. So you're like. I was completely, I'd say, as you say, for the next, you know, two thirds of the movie, I had no idea where I was going. Mm. So I was like, oh, so yeah, I was like slightly disappointed, but then obviously loved it after. I can't be disappointed. Go on, <laughs> I think for for me, that there were like two two main things that really stuck with me was that, firstly, like like you guys have already kind of hinted at, in terms of the murder mystery slash whodunit genre, there hasn't been something. There hasn't been something original in a long time. Uh, before Knives Out, the biggest commercial murder mystery film had been Murder on the Murder on the Orient Express, which had been done several <laughs> yeah. times by that yeah. point, and is a story mm. that is very well known. And it's Agatha Christie. I mean, you don't get much more like familiar territory than that. But also, yeah. like looking back along, aside from well-known adaptations of famous detective novels the only other really successful whodunits or murder mysteries have been comedy approaches or like parody so things like clue which i absolutely love or murder Mm. by death as well which i think is a little bit more serious but is also very heavily loaded with one-liners and jokes so like when i when i saw knives out and i realized very early on that we were getting something that was wholly original and new that also had this sort of like comic capacity of some of those really beloved like sleuthing parodies. Yeah. I was there like, oh, this is interesting because he's taking the the mechanics of the genre seriously, but he's also not afraid to have a lot of fun doing that. Which takes yeah. me into the second thing. This is gonna become me just on a diatribe. But, the, no, but do it, it takes do me it. into this the second thing, which is that whilst um obviously Andy has made it very uh, obvious how he how he feels about um, the Last Jedi. The thing that I had gravitated towards when I watched the Last Jedi, that when I heard that Ryan Johnson was doing a murder mystery, piqued my interest. Was that with the Last Jedi, he took a monolith, which is the Star Wars franchise, and he decided to deconstruct it and to interrogate it and to take apart it. You know, to take it apart and go, okay, so what? what is underneath the surface here? Like, what is there for me to bring out? And, like, he played with chronology a little bit in that film with the sort of Rashomon sequences. And he played with, like, the, the sort of, like, visual representation of that galaxy so well. 
So when it comes to Knives Out and you start off very early on revealing who did it and then you realise, like you guys have said, you've got two-thirds of the film to go and what's he going to do with that? And he begins sort of having this like family drama that also is like social commentaries on immigration and also like expectations of women. Like there's that one moment where um, they're they're having the family having the conversation about immigration and then Don Johnson passes the uh, passes the dish the, to to Martin the empty yeah, and yeah. it's like he oh, was man. he was picking apart the pieces of the genre he was playing with new archetypes new characters that like in the commentary he talks about how he wanted them to all look like they could be clue cards but without it having the kind <laughs> of over theatricality or like pantomime of that yeah. and like he he does such an amazing job of going, what are all these things that we love about this genre? What makes it tick? What makes us gravitate towards it? How can I somehow pick all that apart, deconstruct it, and then put it back together in a way that makes you go, oh, wasn't that neat? Uh, so yeah, yeah, the short version is uh, he he did some really cool stuff with Knives Out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, yeah, he really, yeah. really did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And- say it's hard to talk about this film that's not already been spoken about by so many because it's... It's just so well written, well acted. Everything's good about it. I mean, I I, guess, but... I I love to sit and listen to people mm. talk enthusiastically about something they like. So I'm going to subject our listeners to it for a Go bit for longer. If you <laughs> can, I just point mind. out? Can Obviously. I point out something? Yeah, yeah. That they made the oldest person in the in the house sleep at the top of the house. Like the oldest man member of the family had to walk all those stairs, <laughs> and everyone's just like kipping underneath them. I mean, I assume Bastards. that was his choice. No, I bet he wanted like the first room, and he's just like they're like, nah, dad, you go all the way upstairs. That, in his own house. <laughs> the the great nana wasn't wasn't even as old as as old as Christopher Plummer in that film. She's like seven years younger than Christopher Plummer in Knives Out. She younger. Yeah, I thought she... she was still older. My God, no. That's... Which just it says a lot about how well Christopher Plummer had aged at that point. Wow. Like, yeah, goodness, he didn't me. look a day over eighty six. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And like such a vital performance as well. Like, so he's. I reckon his screen time is probably maximum fifteen minutes. Oh yeah, and his his presence and like I mean, and I'm including the big scene with Marta in that as well. And yeah, that's probably only like four minutes. And his presence is just all over the film, and including the portrait. well, well, yeah, yeah the, say him the back portrait, the which was which was added entirely in post, mm-hmm. which is really cool. Wow, um, okay. all entirely digital, um, and yeah, the fact that it changes to a smile for the final shot, <laughs> yeah. like explicitly goes from being so grumpy <laughs> to it. happy when yeah, Marta yeah. takes over. But such so charismatic, but so cutting, and kind of you can see the ruthlessness. And the way that his hackles are up when his family are around. But then he's playing Go with Marta and he is so just wonderfully like your grandpa, grandpa. and just yeah. messing around. Mm. And and the fact that he has that, it, it, it's such a wonderful performance. It's so, so good. The, gra- the gravitas he has for, say, like max 15 minutes on... Yeah, it's, it's uh... also, it's it's such a... It's such an often overlooked thing in any kind of mystery film is that quite often the victim is only there to be mm. 
the source of Killed. everyone else's yeah. anxieties and motives and suspicions mm. and things. But what they managed to capture with Harlan Thromby in just a, a few limited minutes is a is a man like a a, a, li- a real <clears throat> man with hopes for his family's future and worries about his family's future and like the fact that he's picked Marta this like whose entire story arc just comes down to the fact that in the end she's such a good nurse that she'd never have made a mistake which is such yeah. a lovely like from two identical bottles just so not identical <laughs> I, I, I identical yeah. bottles from touch alone they have just, different you know. viscosity and different <laughs> looks great movie different different great liquid movie. densities they may well weigh different amounts like that's what I think... i'm going off that's what mm-hmm. he was saying they mm-hmm. weigh differently mm-hmm. and it's fractioned it's a fraction, mm. but it was. Yeah. Andy, you're mm. so cynical when it comes to stuff like this. Let's yeah, see Cap- what you Captain write in your sequel. Just you wait. Like, you're such a great nurse. You can't even tell. And I was like, all right, all right, maybe she is a great nurse. Maybe she doesn't. Maybe she can. She knows how to operate and doesn't even need to be trained. Who knows? But it does. It does add such a poignance to the film as a whole, though. That like the the love that he has for Marta, the like com- the completely selfless love that he has for him, like how much good he sees in her like that carries through in everything that she does in the aftermath of his death like her guilt and Mm. the scene where she starts crying on the steps and like she has to like steal herself and turn around like Mm. that's that's really incredible acting work from Amanda Armas at that point she'd been in Blade Runner 2049 for about three minutes and she turned up in she was in War Dogs and was in a limited role there as well but like this was oh, a really was meaty part. She's and yeah, yeah, and how like yeah, I don't know how um how much performing in English she'd done as well. Like she's well, this, so she was still bloody learning good. language at the time, like still learning English, and she's and she's like and she's holding her own, and not even just holding her own. She's pretty much schooling a cast that is stacked with like incredible yeah. actors mm. that are all at the top of their game. But then I I think I couldn't point to a single performance in this that doesn't work. Like um, you took it uh, from me big time. Like there's, <laughs> it's very clever because there's not they're not all deep three dimensional characters. Because if you tried to do that with this kind of cast and the setting, considering what ninety five percent of this movie takes place in the one house, you know it's. It would be too enclosed an environment for too many big character journeys. However, every single one of them, and again, this comes down to what you've talked about, Jordan, this dissecting, ripping it apart, finding the depth and the kind of breadth that you can explore these characters because they are all satires, you know, they're all stereotypes in some way, and they all feed this wider narrative in this wider genre. But they all do it with... 110 percent commitment like i can imagine this film set was one of the most fun experiences for all of these actors because you're just there and you've all got your own journeys your own little stories to you know dissect and explore your own character relationships and frictions and it just looked like every single one of them was so in it having a great time delivering incredible Mm. performances you know even even those that kind of make your toes curl a bit and, you know, it takes an actor to commit 100% if you're going to be that real, you know, right-wing ignoramus 
in <laughs> 21st century. And, you know, if they hadn't have committed to that role, it wouldn't have fallen well in 2019. But they did. And I'm sure they had a laugh, and I'm sure it was like, oh, God, when they read the script. But they were in a safe place. Ryan Johnson directed them incredibly, I think. The writers gave them some incredible script to work with. And it shows in, what is it, a cast of, like, 20 at most, I'm going to say? Nah, probably about 15. If that. Yeah. About, I think it's about eight. There's five five kids, isn't there? Or I don't even know how many there is. Uh, you know, it's a small cast and when you look at the whole cast list. And yeah. every single one of them brings a fire and an energy to the screen when they're on there. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Agreed. Yeah, just wonderful. There's another um, another point that... <clears throat> I would like to raise is the cinematography, Absolutely which we incredible. don't necessarily. Yeah, we 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 we're not always that good at. Uh, we we're quite actor focused as a podcast, generally speaking. <laughs> um, but yeah, in in my exploration of this film, came across some fascinating information about the cinematographer Steve Yedlin, who put a hell of a load of work. Into and this is mainly cribbing from um, movies with Mikey, Mikey Newman. Thank you, please. I just uh, incredible, incredible YouTuber. Please, 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 please watch all of his stuff. Um, but Stevie Edlin decided he wanted to take this whole debate of you can't shoot on digital and have it look like you're shooting on celluloid and go well, no, you can. And so he went around LA with a celluloid camera and a digital camera and shot a load of the same stuff on the same lenses and then went away and did a load of maths and programming and wrote all of the programs and all of the algorithms that you would need to make digital look like film. And this is the first film that he kind of did that on. And so this was all (laughs) shot on digital, but it looks like film, but it also doesn't. And it's just... It looks mad. And I love that someone has come along and gone, no, Christopher Nolan, you're right. The look of film is incredibly important, but we don't need to make filmmakers jump through hoops and only be able to shoot for a maximum of two minutes before they run out of film in the can. (laughs) Like, we can do digital, but still keep the look and feel of how we want this all to look and feel and it's just it's incredible and what the, this man did the 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 thing as well like i'm i'm so glad that you made a point of specifically bringing up the cinematography from steve yadlin because for me like having at this point like i said i've watched this film six times with different commentaries and like i've i've really sort of like i've i've watched the film without the volume on like i've watched it to just look at it and just think like how incredible it looks but the thing for me is that the the actual way that yedlin has gone about composing the frames of this film it's an extension of what the film is doing and what ryan johnson's trying to do with the genre because what what the film is doing is it's saying here are the conventions of the whodunit and the murder mystery here are these these classical archetypes and tropes and the the sort of rich history that we don't we don't want to besmirch that in any way we don't want to tarnish that or try and say that any of that is no longer relevant but look at what you can do when you reframe it with modern values and modern sensibilities you know the 
the archetypes of the characters in this, like a, a right-wing Twitter troll and like a, a sort of airheaded socialite and things like that. Uh, like, you know, I, I read about, I, I saw a tweet about an article about a, a piece in the New Yorker, like, <laughs> but, but like you, you have these, these archetypes that have been like carefully lifted from the genre's past and contextualized in a very 21st century way. Like, Ryan Johnson said in the his like in theater commentary because he does these like really cool commentaries where he basically releases it like a podcast and you can go into a cinema put earphones in and have a commentary playing while you're in the cinema but like he wanted people to know that this film was shot in 2018 so he's got references to like things that are like culturally of that time so like the 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 iPhones that are used the Twitter all of that stuff and what Yedlin achieves with the cinematography by by using digital and using cutting edge tech to create that veneer of older cinematic sensibilities whether it's the grain or the aperture or you know the the way that sometimes like the edges of the frame shakes a little bit like you get on actual Mm. film it's just it's all part of this sense that ryan johnson has left no stone unturned in going i want to make something that's an instant classic which is what I think that this this is. And and it's that combination of it's instant, it's in the present, it's right now, and it feels like it's been coming since the beginning of this kind of storytelling. Yeah. Very well put. Very well said. Right, we are we're rapidly closing in on the half hour mark. So, I think it's uh, as we've as we've demonstrated we could talk at length about this film for much much longer and roll on knives out two uh coming from netflix so that we can all do a spoiler special a spoiler cast sorry because that will be great but i think we should very quickly move on to our final thoughts and our scores out of five so um jordan why don't you we'll we're, we're putting you your honorary ross this week so your score will be immortalized on the scoreboard uh for for me uh up until knives out came out i think my favorite detective fiction film was probably the big sleep and uh currently my favorite detective fiction film is now knives out uh so it's <laughs> it's a it's a full five donut holes from me ah oh, you took my yeah thing. well yeah, you know you gave it to me first <laughs> i did i did um Let's go Andy. I'm intrigued. Oh, okay. So, yes, very much like this film. I wanted to give it five, but I've got two big problems, which is going to take me down to 4.5. And I'll quickly go over them if you like. Was that how my my Zoom went a bit? Was that 4.75 or 4.5? 4.5. Okay, all right, all right, okay. First big thing I've got, which is two big things that are really wrapped around the whole plot. And the first one is the regurgitative reaction to mistruthing. <laughs> it's bullshit, and a lot rides on it. And I get it, but do they, apart from the end when they actually use it to frame um, Captain America, and, apart, and the first time they, they see um, Detective Blong meets Martha properly on the outside and stuff, and she vomits into that pig vase, whatever, do they actually use it at all? And it's, she's like, oh, I, you know, even if I think about lying... Uh, I'll throw up, and he's yeah, like, no, oh, just tell fragments of the truth. Blanc, Blanc knows that she was yeah. involved 
from the second he meets her. He looks down at her shoe. He meets her. He looks yeah. down and Which, sees the blood. So he's waiting two. to see what happens. Point two. That's point two. I'm coming on to that. Um, I just thought it was... I, if, again, if I was doing it, I think it would have been better used and maybe better if we didn't know what the tale was until Benoit told the audience at the end. He knew she was lying or she had a truth. Or maybe she didn't. If he knew the whole uh, blood on the shoe, which I'm getting to, is was the whole kind of tell or whatever, then he could have lied. He could have said, like, I know you've got a tell. And she's like, what's my tell? And he's like, well, I'm not going to tell you a tell. And at the, the end of the movie, he could be like, mm, you haven't got a tell. No, I just knew because of that. Or your tell is this. And then people can watch it again and go like, oh, yeah, maybe she is crooking her eyebrows slightly every time she does The it. problem with that, though, um, is the, the reason why you have to know what her tell is so early on is because... Yeah. If she didn't have like a crippling character flaw or like a problem, which is with lying, then all of a sudden there would be no like source of struggle for her as a character. Like mm. she wouldn't have. It would lose so much of the tension. She wouldn't have an I get obstacle. that. I get that. And yeah, just not not liking to lie is a way you could you could still use that, but you know it's not as it's not as powerful. Definitely not. No, it's definitely. Not. I think the thing but with the gag. It was also like. I was just yeah, going to say. I think the thing with the gag reflex specifically is that when you watch the film over and over, you can see like there are tiny little moments where she's like about to retch or where she like stifles a gurgle, and because you know about that early on, it then means that as the film's going on, you can kind of like see these little red flag moments. Which I think mm, I can understand why that would become a detractor for people that aren't a fan of regurgitative gag syndrome, as I think they might call it. But I think if you are on board, it becomes also, a valuable. There was a lot of times she was like there was storytelling device. Sorry, you, sorry, you froze them. Um, there was a lot of time where you know if you if she thinks about lying, she throws up, and you, it's really hard to keep vomit down. Uh, and there's just lots of different times in the movie where it was like, oh, it's ten seconds now, it's five seconds, and at the end it was like two minutes and something, and it was just like, okay, but yeah, whatever. <laughs> I say maybe maybe a smaller tale, whatever. I, I I say it's a big part. As I say, it's a big part of the film, which is why I'm, I'm really annoyed at it. And the second part is this bloody red dot that could have been anything on our shoe. <laughs> He, the first time he meets her, he's like, that's blood on your shoe. Tell me how. You didn't even, like, as a character, or, like, Ryan Johnson didn't say, like, he, you know, he didn't go, oh, I suspected it might be in blood. And then as I was expecting, as I'm inspecting the carpet for mud, I confirmed it because, you know, whatever. But he, again, there's so much from this red dot that could have been a d- part of the design of the shoe for all he knows. Four well, five. I yeah, don't but, think okay, he'd be a very four, good <laughs> detective if he just said... Oh, I really like that very Art Deco that red ra- spot on her shoe. Red dot yeah. on your, yeah. Like, like, and yeah, it's, it's like, not. He how, doesn't how necessarily. Does he know it's blood, though? Well, he doesn't necessarily write at the beginning, but then he knows that he knows that she will throw up if she lies, and so he puts her in difficult situations, and he watches her and sees what she does, and watches her traipse through all of the footprints and uh, in the mud and all of that kind of stuff. But he he knows there's. He, he's sure there's something else going on because someone hired him without him, without admitting who yeah. they were. So he I'd... knew something else was happening. And like, yeah, he, who knows? Who knows? 4.5. So those two things, they were pretty big. 
but still a, a, an amazing film. An okay. Amazing film. Pretty All big. Right. Well, Knock point two five yeah. of a star off each. <laughs> for, for each problem. Because yeah, there was such big things. I, I do love. I do love Drew. Can you say regurgitative reaction to mistruthing as Benoit Blanc? A uh, regurgitative reaction to mistruthing. I mean, a great line. Definitely. I'm going to use great. it on my next date. But, uh... <laughs> <laughs> Oh, the oh, poor date. Lovely. Right, and finally, Matt. <laughs> okay, I'm going to slot myself neatly right in between the two and go for a solid 4.75 cliche cop pairings out of five. Um, we haven't really talked about them, but Lieutenant Elliot and uh, and the trooper, Trooper Wagner, <laughs> I, I don't know, there was just something I loved about their consistent presence through the whole movie. And I just think, again, it adds what Jordan's talked about, all these layers. For me, the regurgitative, the throwing up thing, um, I quite like, again, that it's there in your face straight away because the whole movie is about adding depth to something that on the surface is quite shallow. Like It's quite a simple movie premise, but there's so much going on in it which is how it keeps you hooked for the whole thing and makes you want to watch the second one already. So yeah, 4.75, so nearly a perfect film, but I just think the second one will be that bit better. Okay. And yeah, for me, it's it's another, it's my third ever, no, my fourth five. Jesus. So easily, guys. (laughs) Five um, fake knives out of... Or yeah, five fake knives out of five fake knives. I like the social commentary, the comedy, the heartbreakingly, wrenchingly horrible, like traumatic performance. This film has everything. It has everything that I want from a film. And I think I understand the criticism with the regurgitative response to mistruth in. But I I think it's marvellous. I think it's just so it's definitely my favorite Daniel Craig character, or fa- probably favorite crack character for a long time. His, I don't know if we spoke much actually about him and the character, but what? Uh, no, we haven't. It's just really. the accent. I mean, to be fair, it's just the accent. CSI it's KFC. And it's great. So. CSI yeah. KFC. <laughs> what a line! Like just yeah, it's a flawless movie, in in my opinion. So uh, an easy five, um, which puts it in at joint first. With Inside Out, with 4.81 out of 5 overall. Joint first. Well done. Impressive. Well done, Nigel. And, like, to be honest, E.T. probably would have got there as well if Andy didn't rate E.T. 3.25 like some sort of monster. Give me my own spoiler cast on (laughs) E.T. and let me go to town on it. I'm glad I wasn't there for the E.T. Boring film. (laughs) Because I would have maybe... Slightly agreed with Andy. <laughs> yeah, ah. it's a good first draft. Uh, it's an amazing first draft. That's a story for another it's time. First draft. It is. Yeah, but anyway, and so now that we've we've heaped praise on it and gone to forty minutes. Oh my god. Okay, we're going to be as quick as we can with this, and these ain't going to be short. But it is time to get your sequels pitched. So, the rules of the pitches are nice and simple. You will have your chance to pitch me your movie without interruption. You can explain the plot, the themes, everything you want to get across to me. And then I might have a question or two for you. Honestly, I might not. But then we enter the debate phase where the three of you go head to head and you tell me why yours is the best 
and maybe why the other two aren't and we keep it nice and civil and it's all in the name of good fun but also go for the give it give everyone a bit of a kick in as well because it makes for good listening um (laughs) just gentle low blow gentle taps below the belt are allowed but generally speaking we want it to be the worst just the gentle one we've all uh, we've all been there unfortunately yeah, I mean, yeah, three of us are university buddies, so we've all had a had a, a oh, gentle tap the to the. But anyway, right, you <laughs> rung the bell. Oh God. Um. Anyway, so let's get this show on the road. Starting with, let's go with our guest, Mr. Jordan King. <gasps> no pressure. No pressure. So, Jordan, what is the title of your movie? And if you can, can you give us like the 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 one sentence pitch? So the title of my sequel is Play Dead, a Benoit Blanc Mystery. And nice. the one sentence pitch is that Benoit Blanc has decided to take his Christmas holidays in England, but a trip to a local <laughs> amateur dramatics theatre company performance soon turns into a night filled with murder and mystery. And revelations and men being dicks. <laughs> this is great. I mean, <laughs> brilliant. Okay, whenever you're ready, Jordan. Okie dokie. Yeah. Uh, and also to preface this, this was originally a four and a half page long. I'm going to say, <laughs> I was going to say, say where, on, where on these nine pages are you starting? <laughs> <laughs> I start on the third chapter of my. <laughs> uh, no, okay, right. So, cold open. We watch the process of a dagger being made, sharpened, inscribed, and sheathed, before a gloved hand delicately picks it up. Cut to black. Shrill strings strike up. Title card. Play dead. A Benoit Blanc mystery. Dissolved to. Benoit Blanc, fresh from solving the Harlan Thromby case, has decided to take a break. He's headed across the pond for the holiday season. During the flight, we see Blanc staring out the window, crooning, have yourself a merry little Christmas. Camera pulls out from shallow focus close-up, breaking the serenity of the moment as a cockney geezer from a rowback, Idris Elba, cranes forward and says, Give it a rest, Blanc. You're not Michael fucking Bublé. One permitted <laughs> F-bomb in a 12A used. Blanc asks how the guy knows his Immediately. name. Immediately. But a tannoy announcement that the plane's coming in to land distracts him, and when he turns back around, there's no sign of the sweary Brit. The next thing we see is a taxi heading past a sign, Welcome to Weathersby, Peace and Quiet in Perpetuity, and then dissolve into it, pulling up outside a B&B and Blanc stepping out. He meets the owners, Midsummer and Marders, played by Reese Shearsmith and Steve Pemberton, and we have a joke of Blanc saying, The name's Blanc, Benoit Blanc. Alright, looks like we've got bloody 007 here. Probably Marders says that one. Blanc unpacks and we see that it was Marta who sent him to England and paid for his holiday as a gift and that she has bought him a ticket for a local Amdram production of Othello. Going to the show, we meet the jittery stage manager Peter, Alex Lawther, son of assistant director Jill, Sally Hawkins, and bullish director Jeremy, Sean Bean, who are also playing Desdemona in Othello. We also meet a beautiful (laughs) theatre critic from the local paper, Hannah Waddingham, and a host of characters played by all the best actors that we can afford. Michael Caine and Maggie Smith play old thespian Brexiteers, Dev Patel and Zoe Kazan play young lefty lovies. Phoebe Waller-Bridge is a true crime podcast obsessive. Chuckles Branner basically reprises his role as Gilderoy Lockhart. And French and Saunders and Rupert Grint show up too, because um, why not? 
Uh, the, the play gets to Othello's suicide, and in the final moments, it looks too real, and we realise that Sean Bean has stabbed himself for real. We go into the usual murder mystery format from here, with Blanc doing the questioning, and of course, everyone has good motives for why they'd want him dead. I have got extensive notes on this, if anyone wants to send messages into the show, by the way. Uh, but then we are joined by Idris Elba's Nick Noir. He's basically Sherlock Holmes, a consulting detective who gets brought in when the police are, st- are stumped or can't be bothered. And this is a local Amdram production in the middle of the English countryside, so he- they can't be bothered. Uh, cue clashing <laughs> methods and manners between the rough as overdone toast noir and the smooth yet spicy southern fried gravy that is Blanc. Noir <laughs> discovers that Jessica, the critic, was having an affair with Sean Bean, so his wife must have killed him for revenge, but Blanc is unconvinced. Blanc confronts Jessica but discovers the real truth. When Jill, Sally Hawkins' character, discovered Jessica having an affair with her husband, she confronted her, enraged, but they actually bonded. They realised that he had never really loved either of them, and he was abusing them both in many ways. We see lots of flashbacks at this point to convey abuse. So they concocted a plan for Jessica to replace the fake knife with a real one while she visited Sean Bean in his dressing room before the show. Jessica also convinces him, because he's a narcissist, to make a change as director, to have Desdemona kill herself, uh, be killed with a poisoned kiss, rather than being stabbed, which ensures that the coup de grace with the knife gets Sean Bean's character the best death scene, which he goes for, and obviously stabs himself. Blanc has solved the mystery, but he decides that he can't in good conscience turn in two women who have been done so wrong. I have played my part as you have played yours, but it is not for me to close the curtain on this production, he says in a Benoit Blanc voice and not mine. So he leaves it to them to turn (laughs) themselves in, lie and say it was a tragic accident, or go on the run and spend the rest of their lives looking over their shoulders. The movie ends with Blanc at home. As Blue Christmas plays us out, he receives a newspaper, the Weathersby Gazette, through the door. All we see is the headline, Play Dead. A picture of the Weathersby players which we track across to a smiling Sally Hawkins and then the camera smoothly glides down to a byline. Words by Jessica Rowe. Blanc smiles, takes a long drag on his cigar and looks out of his Christmas tree light adorned window knowing that justice has been done. Fade to white as the snow outside becomes the end credits. The end. Ooh, very nice. Um, so I think my, my only... My question is our first one... What inspirations did you have for this, just out of curiosity? So, my my inspirations were really wanting to have a British-heavy cast, which would mean then having an English setting. And I was there like, what would be a fun English setting that is as like recognisable in the realms of murder mysteries and whodunits as possible, but also like has room for something new to be done with it? So I was there like local theatre obviously (laughs) and then the thing that actually I latched onto is that Knives Out is a really compelling film about like immigration and like social political tensions between families and like all of the things that screw them up so I felt like with this one what I'd really like to have is a story that's about a man that's this sort of egotistical narcissist who has his like hooks in all the players in his productions and you know is sort of making their lives hell to to lift himself up which is a very common thing to see in society and so not only did i want his death to be the kind of death that you're there like oh well he got what what he deserved but so often narratives about you know 
people with affairs and mistresses and things end up with it essentially like the two women get turned against each other and it becomes about the animosity caused between women when it's actually this man that's like the linchpin of it all so i thought that the like the cool and like socially conscious thing to do here would be to take an opportunity for women that have been scorned to turn the tables and actually unite against this common enemy and you know see justice done in a way that is dramatic enough to be a murder mystery film but also like has like a ring of truth to it um and so yeah that was that was like in my head when i was coming up with my uh my masterpiece i do okay. want to take just a moment um i feel like jordan has cheated yeah me too. because mm-hmm. why Jordan has brought Sean Bean in and killed him, and that's not fair because now how the fuck are we going to compete with someone seeing Sean Bean die for the 770th time? Like, bollocks, man. I mean, I mean yeah, it, it was funny. As soon as you said Sean Bean, I was a bit, I wrote down, when's he going to die? Yeah. <laughs> but that's, that was... It's, I say, if he's the twist, it's not much of a twist. twist. <laughs> that was, but that was something that I was very aware of, was I was there like, Ryan Johnson with his knives out, cast people because he knows what our relationship to them mm. as stars is so like mm. with with Daniel Craig and the whole Idris Elba as Bond thing I was there like great chance to have this like opposing British detective uh, and with Sean Bean I just thought who else are you going to kill in a British film it's great Sean Bean? <laughs> it's great <laughs> right come on. we'll we'll come back to that shortly but thank you Jordan you've you have answer my question very nicely and we'll, we'll we will steam straight onwards to mr andy henry what's your title my title is just called knives out 2 i've got a couple of working titles but they're not any good but they will come in okay in the, well, uh, when, the, when the title card comes in the film i'll say them. okay well knives out 2 and what's your strap line, uh, strap line. Uh, benoit blanc has to solve a murder where the main suspect is him Ooh. Oh, well, do go ahead. Okay, so we open in the small hometown of Benoit Blanc. He's in a town hall and we see, a ce- we see a celebration going on for Detective Blanc. Benoit walks over and congratulates his brother, Jackson Blanc, played by Matthew McConaughey, as he's retiring from the force and the celebration is for him. <laughs> There's no way. Yeah. Benoit shakes Jackson's hand but sees his little brother's hand shake a little. Jackson laughs it off, saying he's two days caffeine-free because he was addicted to coffee. We meet the mayor, played by Henry Winkler, who has given Jackson a medal or golden baton or something like that, uh, before he goes outside for a smoke. Benoit joins him, and Jackson offers Benoit his coat as it's cold outside. Benoit refuses at first, but then takes it upon Jackson's insistence. After a few minutes, and we meet some of the smaller characters, uh, we hear a gunshot, and everyone rushes outside to see the mayor dead on the ground with a bullet hole in his chest. Above the body, holding the gun with a little bit of blood on him, is Benoit Blanc. He opens his mouth to try and explain, and we hard cut to the titles. Knives out too! This time is personal, or maybe big, t- big trouble in a little town. I don't know yet. Um, the town hall was sectioned off, and everyone inside the hall is not allowed to leave until the cops come and arrest Benoit. We learn that the only bridge into town is uh, being worked on, and so it will take the cops about two hours to find a way around. Benoit starts to get vilified by the crowd, thinking he, thinking he shot the mayor as he was jealous for his brother's medal. Jackson says he will take his brother aside and start questioning him until the cops arrive. In a separate room, Benoit tells Jackson he didn't kill the mayor, and Jackson says he knows, but it doesn't look good. Benoit says they have two hours to find out who murdered the mayor or here go to jail. They sneak outside to look over the body, and they find... 
Basically, obviously, nothing's gone from the body. It's not a robbery. It's just a straight-up murder. It's obviously meant to set up Benoit, but by who and why? Benoit rolls over the mayor and sees the wound on his back, but realises the back is where the bullet entered and the chest is the exit wound. Benoit looks off to where he thinks the bullet might have come from, but can't see anything except for houses and buildings. Jackson wants to uh, tell the town that... Uh, Jackson wants to tell the town hall that Benoit is innocent, but Benoit stops and says if the people find out there's still a killer on the loose, it could result in everyone panicking. At the moment, everyone is calm and orderly. Having them believe that Benoit is the killer is best for now. But they need to question everyone to find out more about the mayor and the town in order to solve the mystery. But no one will talk if they think the killer is in the room. But Benoit has an idea. Jackson walks out uh, of the room and tells everyone that Benoit is being held in another room by Town Hall security, and he would like to speak to everyone about what has happened. He calls in uh, everyone one by one, and we meet the Deputy Mayor, played by Brian, uh, Brian Cranston. The Deputy... Wa- the Deputy Mayor, played by Brian Cranston. The Deputy wanted to bring in, uh, the small town into the future with investment, but the Mayor wouldn't allow this to happen, wanting to keep the town traditional. Lance Davenport, played by Robert Downey Jr., a businessman who wants to frack but was refused by the mayor. He also had a failed mayoral election bid. Trisha Popmount, played by Zoe Deschanel, a school teacher who we learn is having an affair with the mayor, and maybe their child goes to the school. The mayor was going to end their relationship. Nigel Coventry, played by Channon Tatum, a British priest and the best friend to the deceased mayor. We learn he's not as righteous as he makes out to be. There's r- uh, rumours of drug and homosexual behaviour. His friendship with the mayor recently ended for some reason. We had three random townsfolk, Kevin Hart, Kevin Klein, and Judy Dench, who would be there for the odd comedy line and bits of dialogue that turns out to be clues later on. Uh, they're really there just to help sway the judgment of the crowd. They're like hype people. So when someone goes like, oh, I think it's Lance Davenport, these three will kind of go, yeah, it's because this, this, this. And then basically the whole crowd, almost like in South Park, just go, rabble, 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 rabble. Uh, and then finally, Tilly Lockhart, played by Natalie Portman, a butcher who is well known in the town for hating the mayor and wanting to bring down the government. During Tilly's interrogation, a noise comes from the cupboard and we see Benoit is hiding in it, texting his brother questions for the suspects. Benoit falls out of the cupboard and Jackson tells Tilly about how Benoit is innocent and how two of the best minds are on the case, so no matter what, there's no need to panic. Tilly immediately runs back to everyone and shouts, there's a killer on the loose! And everyone starts to panic. Benoit stands on a chair and says the cops will be here in one hour and if the killer is in the room, that means they're not going anywhere and they will be caught. Uh, the Blancs question a few more people, and as they do, the townsfolk start to turn more on each other. And this is where the three random town uh, folk will help sway uh, the sides. As we realise, all the secrets in the town cross over with other people and their secrets. The, uh, the Blancs decide to investigate the mayor's office in the town hall. 30 minutes left. Benoit basically reminds the audience that there's still a lot of evidence to show that Benoit uh, is the murderer. And if they don't find, a how- find out who the killer is, uh, then the-, the killer will walk free and the cops will basically arrest Benoit. Stakes. Exploring the mayor's office, they realise that everyone they've interviewed has some sort of connection with the mayor and all have an equal motive to kill him. They walk back and see the townsfolk about to start a riot. Jackson tries to stop it as Benoit thinks. Finally, the police enter with their guns raised and everyone frozen. Benoit shouts, he knows what happened and I know who the killer is. And Benoit looks around the room and his finger lands on Jackson Blanc. And he explains, ooh... At the start, Benoit... Um, oh, sorry. So he explains. At the start, Benoit thought he was being framed, but remembered he was wearing his brother's coat when he was outside. So it's actually Jackson that's supposed to be uh, being framed. But through clues and dialogue from early in the film, Benoit realises that he was meant to be out on the balcony in the coat when the mayor died. And he asked Jackson about his coffee addiction. Jackson tries to laugh it off again, but Benoit rolls up Jackson's sleeves to reveal tracks marks from heroin needles. 
Benoit realizes Jackson spent all his money on his addiction and is now in debt with a loan shark. Jackson couldn't pay the debt and decided he needed to escape, but having no money, couldn't. So he came up with an idea to get a new life and become a new person. He decided to spend his last bit of money on a hitman to kill the mayor while Benoit was outside wearing his coat. The coat was like the go signal for the hitman. Benoit would be blamed for the mayor's death, but Jackson would use his recent status to convince a judge to get a deal that would involve Benoit serving a shorter amount of time in the witness protection program because Benoit has gotten more like, well-known or famous between the films. Jackson would join his brother in witness protection or go undercover in order to uh, help him, but really use it to run away from his problems. At the end, Jackson gets arrested. He can try and run and escape and then maybe get pinned down by the town, but he gets arrested. The deputy mayor offers Benoit the medal, but he kindly refuses, not being into material possessions. And then Benoit leaves as the town starts to fight about their exposed secrets. Okay. Thank you. Um, So, again, same questions, Jordan. What inspirations did you have for for this? Mine, I, I, I kind of went more on the who done it. I was leaning more uh on a proper, you know, find out who it was right at the end. Um and then I just was going for yeah, the biggest the biggest twist. I a bit like Jordan, my original pitch was about four pages because I went into why uh, more basically why everyone was uh uh up uh, you know, their motive and stuff. So, yeah, it was a bit more not as obvious it could be the brother right at the end, but um yeah, I was going for yeah, just the biggest the biggest twist, like the biggest wow. Okay. All right. Thank you. And finally, Matthew, Big Viking XL rushed it. What's up? Uh, what's your title and your one-liner, please? Okay. My title is Knives Out, colon, Two Sides of a Coin. The two being, you know, mm. sequel. Double, double entendre, uh-huh. uh, whether that works. All right. uh, my one-liner, <laughs> Benoit, Marta and Ransom are about to do the dance of death again. As Ransom takes a chance and flips one last coin. Mm. Okay, intriguing. Whenever you're ready. Okay, we open with a still tableau. Chris Evans' Ransom is stood over Anadarmus Martyr, who lies bleeding on a rainy, dark, shadowy side street. Ransom is holding a knife, who some, uh, the wary audience will recognise. It's the, it's the knife from the first version, but it's not the prop knife. This one, it's the actual uh, knife. There's a monologue overheard as the camera pans round. It's like a 3D still image. Sometimes in life, no matter how hard you work, no matter how many secrets you dig up, <laughs> there's just something bigger at play. The ancient joker Sam named Lady Luck. Some people are born with it. Some people can only dream of it. And others, well, those people take wherever they can. All three of those people are in this image. And there's only two people in the image. The screen cuts to black, title credits roll, and we see three weeks later. Oh, no, three weeks earlier. Quite the opposite. Three weeks (laughs) earlier. (laughs) Marta is settling into a new home, which through the opening scene we establish that this movie takes place about a month or so after the first one ends. The Thromberries appear in various cameo moments through the first act, asking for various things from Marta. Sometimes she's kind and gives them back to the family. Other times she's happy to refuse. So Walt and his son, for instance, they're definitely sent away. Meg is actually allowed to stay in the house with Marta. And there's plenty of quips and one-liners from Marta and the relevant family members just to keep that intelligent, quick-witted comedy feel about the first act. Uh, the last person to arrive, which brings a change in the music and the tone of the film, is Benoit Blanc. 
but he's looking rather stern. Benoit explains that it would appear there's a loophole in Ransom's arrest. Some new evidence has presented itself in the case, while other evidence has gone missing. The new evidence paints Marta in a bad light and implies that she and Ransom have had intimate relations. And surprise, surprise, the evidence that's gone missing is Ransom's confession. Shit. Lo and behold, one week after Ransom's released and Marta is questioned, Benoit advises us not to say anything, including refusing the story. Um, as this could be used against her in the court of law, all that stuff. Uh, her inability to lie, the regurgitative throwing up thing again, I can never remember what it's called, uh, makes the whole thing horrible for her, but rather than lying, she just quietly sits through the interviews and gives very little away. When done, she throws up immediately in the interim bin, into, in the interview room bin with differing reactions from the cops in the room. One on oh, on the note of cops, actually. Uh, the good cop is played by Charlize Theron, but she looks like she's the stern, mm. the stern tough cop at first. Uh, the bad cop, who, um, you know, everyone thinks is the lovable one, is Carl Urban. Uh, and it appears, you know, the kind of story of Carl Urban's character is that Ransom has been holding him ransom. You can work that one out. Um, I just write the pitch, <laughs> not the script. Uh, so, whilst Marta's back and forth with the cops and starting to receive some creepy foreboding notes and cryptic messages from someone, probably Ransom, including the knife from the first scene that gets it vanishes at one point, so it's no longer in that kind of chair knife thing that's going on. Uh, Benoit's working in the shadows to unveil who in the police force is not so squeaky clean. He does actually suspect Theron and ill-advises Marta about this, who ends up actually confessing to Urban that at one moment she may have had some possible fleeting interest in Ransom, uh, but, you know, that kind of gets used and torn apart and used against her as Urban starts building a case. Um, as I say, I just write the pitch. So basically, what happens? At the end of Act 2, Marta appears to start thinking that Benoit's no longer helping her. He's distanced himself. Uh, she also gets upset because Meg is doing the same, as in, like, everyone's starting to think that maybe there is more to it. Um, and she ends up, she just gets really annoyed. She's, I'm going out. She puts a scarf around her head and she leaves, but it's still light. It's worth noting, it's still light. Later that day, it's now dark. It's rainy. We're in a dark, shadowy side street. Ooh, flashback to the first scene. Uh, we know what's going to happen next. Ransom appears and stabs Marta with the knife. The light fades. It's like a real super close-up of the eyes. The light fades out of her eyes. The screen darkens. It's all very cinematic. Shout out to our early review. Uh, and we hear the same line from Blanc. Sometimes in life, no matter how hard you work, how many secrets you dig up, there's just something bigger at play. That ancient joker named Lady Luck. Some people are born with it, some people can only dream of it, Well, and others, well, those people take whatever they can. All three of those people are in this image. Again, we can only see two people in the frame. However, as soon as that still frame ends and that still image ends, uh, Ransom leaves. Blanc appears from out of the shadows. So he was there the whole time. There were three people in the image. He nurses the body of whom we believe to be Marta, but it's really dark. He apologises. The camera's on his face the whole time. We don't see the lady. Uh, calls for the ambulance department. Um, and he gets the attention, very luckily, of a kitchen porter holding a bag of ice, who then holds the ice in a cloth on the compression in the wound. 
Benoit then tails Ransom, who, of course, he goes behind a police station. Uh, Benoit watches from a distance. Again, we don't see what he sees. We just see a slow zoom into his eyes and his eyes widen. It's kind of all very film noir cop style in now. Um, jump cut from that, just a complete jump cut to Marta in bed. She wakes up in the start. It's all really light now. Suddenly the whole vibe's changed again. There's no signs of a wound or anything on her. And we hear what was a knocking, like perhaps it can be Benoit's heartbeat getting louder and louder and louder. That knocking turns into the knocking of a door. Uh, so Marta runs downstairs, she opens the door and it's Blanc. He's wet, he's covered in blood, he looks like he's seen a ghost. But is it Marta? The audience, hopefully, are well fucking confused by now. Uh, Blanc explains what happened. He explains that the lady Ransom stabbed was Meg. Benoit had roped her in to act as a decoy. He realised he could use their building relationship um, and the fact that she was in the house. She's used Meg as a decoy, uh, but Marta can't be aware of this because she can't lie. She can't start bringing other people in. So Marta had only popped out for a short walk around the grounds with the scarf on. Meg took her scarf later that day, thinking that Ransom was probably watching, which it turns out he was. So the third act is like the great unravelling of the dis- the discovery that Carl Urban was the one with Ransom behind the police uh, behind the police station. It was a botched job again that Ransom helped cover up, perhaps something like that. The whole thing plays out actually in a courtroom. So the last scenes are in the courtroom. And on the large screen is a still image we've seen twice already. Uh, and we find out that Benoit Blanc had planted a camera in that dark side street to actually capture the moment and capture everything that happened. Mm. So we also hear the same sentence a third time, but with more details this time in his doc explanation. Sometimes in life, no matter how hard you work, how many secrets you dig up, there's just something bigger at play. That ancient joker named Lady Luck. Some people are born with it, some people can only dream of it, and others, well, those people take whatever they can. Also, those people are in this image. Meg Thornbury was stabbed, yes, but the blade entered mere flesh. The wound, whilst deep, was superficial, and she is making a perfect recovery. Lucky. Ransom thought he'd finally got Lady Luck on his side as he stabbed and thought he'd murdered Marta that fateful night, and I, well, I was very nearly the accidental accomplice to a murder, but was lucky the kitchen porter exited with the ice and stayed with Meg until the paramedics arrived. He also explains the whole cover-up story with Carl Carl Urban's character. Charlize Theron's at the back. She's fuming. She's so annoyed that her partner has done this. Uh, And basically, the movie ends with a zooming in close-up of Chris Evans' character. He's in the box ready for his sentencing. He's in his smart suit. We zoom right into his face. We zoom right out of his face and he's in the orange jumpsuit ready to go to prison. The end. Okay, very good. Um... Keeping it really quick, yeah. uh, we're, we're going to truncate this a little bit, chaps, because we're running quite long, but what was your inspiration for this? Uh, film noir, a darker shift, more of a revenge story, uh, kind of going for a Baz Luhrmann trilogy idea, maybe, perhaps, that we're tapping into some <laughs> genre cliches. This one's more film noir. Okay. Right. Thank you, chaps. Very nice. Three, Three really, really different conceptual i like yeah i'm i'm a big fan um i'm gonna hand it over to you three so we're not gonna i'm not going to give you long so the clock is ticking this is your this is your chance to 
tell me why I should pick yours and what issues there might be with the others. I'm here. My my mind is as open as a suitcase, but it's closing fast. So your time starts now. Go. Man keeps a lot of the original cast whilst bringing in a couple of others and keeping to the story of the first movie for those that are more appreciative of the first movie. I'm trying to keep that in. Uh, I don't send mine over the pond to Britain um, whilst it's perhaps a great idea. Uh, perhaps it's also not. I keep mine well in the midst of wherever they were set. Um, I also don't bring in a whole bunch more cliches and talking about, you know, stereotypes in negative light that could perhaps be deemed, you know, someone like a priest to then play in all the negative connotations of what a lot of people hold as saintly and virtuous. You could offend a lot of people. I don't want to do that with mine. I'm just going for a classic deep dive revenge story. Wow. Succinct. You said we were on the clock. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, I'll go. I'll go next. So, my, I got um, Matt definitely at one point said, "I hope the audience is confused." I was confused the whole way, mate. No idea what was going on. <laughs> That's my um, intention. My biggest thing is if you bring Ransom back, even if he gets arrested at the end, you just take away this victory the martyrs had at the end. And that, that's like just the, the, the biggest thing. Apart from like, again, if we if, if these pages were not if these pictures were not like tried to condense to two pages and they were four, I'm sure we could have more room to, to, to talk about the actual twist and stuff like that. But I just didn't really just didn't really understand uh, Matt's. Jordan, um, again, yeah, I was like, I quite like the Othello play uh, and how it's a real murder. Again, if we had more space, it'd be great to hear more. I just don't think we heard enough about like the twist and the murder and everything. Um, and I don't know how good a detective Benoit Blanc is if he lets them go at the end and says, it, I mean, it reminds me of that Brooklyn Nine-Nine episode when he catches uh, someone and the, the guy goes, I murdered for love. And Jake goes, that's cool murder, that's cool motive, but still murder. <laughs> it's like, yeah, cool. It's nice you want to help, but it's, you know, it's still murder. Still going to jail. Um, mine is, a, I would say mine's a perfect sequel as it keeps like the most interesting person, the only person really apart from Ransom who you want to see a sequel about. Great new cast. It's the new up-to-date whodunit. Uh, whodunit sorry. Um, and yeah, just a great mystery, which is what you want. Mm. Right. You say so. Jordan, your rebuttal. Uh, so... For for me, I think that what what my story does is it keeps the the kind of like humorous spirit of the first film. This is like an entertainment for all approach to to the murder mystery, but also by digging into sort of like gender politics and the sort of like various ways in which men in power can can corrupt the people around them. Uh, I think that I'm I'm showing signs of something more mature under the surface. Uh, I also think that I've come up with. Far and away the best new new cast. Um, Richard Smith, Steve Pemberton, Michael Caine, Maggie Smith. Oh, like excuse me, Nigel Coventry. <laughs> but I think I think that whilst whilst Andy and, and Matt have like gone down the route of trying to sort of like almost radically reinvent a sequel for Knives Out, Matt's gone down the route of like the gritty film noir, which feels like a, a, a total counterpoint to the first film. And whilst I think, like as a as an artistic approach to to a Benoit Blanc mystery, that that's something really cool to to try and do. I also think that, as Andy's already said, it becomes quite confusing and it strips the victory away from the end of the first film. So sorry about that, Matt. It's it's close, but no cigar for me. Uh, that's all right. with... The writers can write the script for it. I just bring the initial <laughs> but, idea. But then, <laughs> but then, but then, with with Andy's, I think that the 
without the without being given the space to talk about the context of like motives and all that kind of thing like i found myself a little bit lost in the relationship with blanc and his brother and the idea of blanc being like in a closet with his phone <laughs> for some reason like i i couldn't quite get my head around it but um i i thought i thought they both offered something interesting and an interesting angle but i think mine was the most all-round uh well-packaged pitch I didn't. I chose not to do a follow up of the same genre because, quite frankly, the first movie was that damn good. Why would you try and do it again? So I tried to bring <laughs> the production company something different, and then you know the third one could be a it's musical so or a romantic sequel. comedy or whatever you want it to be. Another cliche genre. Oh, Benoit Blanc singing. Absolutely. Why not? We have him singing White Christmas, wasn't I it? I am so well <laughs> for the Benoit Blanc chorus. <laughs> But yeah, I also oh agree. I feel like Andy's is a bit too mine's watered out down. A musical. Um, no, mine's and also oh, well, you well, just well. you play <laughs> into I'm, negative. I've got, got much more to say to be honest. So play into <laughs> negative stereotypes and, and Andy's positive response. No, it's not. people in the world. Oh, good. Okay, good. <laughs> mine's got the best cast. Come on, it's a, it's a movie of great got, casts. That was definitely one of the uh, one of the things of mine. I've got Reece Shearsmith and Steve Pemberton playing characters called Midsummer and Mardis, and I've got uh, Sean yeah. Bean as the corpse. Come on. <laughs> I hadn't set mine in Britain. I can't compete with that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I set mine against the clock. Benoit was trapped on this little, uh, this little town. That was that's why the bridge, the only bridge into town, was being worked on. So he had a time. I really limit. like. Otherwise, he's going have, down. Uh, one thing I do have to say. So it was personal. I really stakes. like the idea of it being like a real time. So like full props. Yeah, for it, that. It's, it's basically I like real, the time. real time. I did. Yeah. That's cool. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Right. That was that was nice and respectful. You made your points, but everyone was respectful. I, I I liked that. We didn't get as heated as as it often gets. I'm fully expecting all of the heat to come out on me when I've made my decision. <laughs> um, so okay, right. Uh, from my perspective, oh, I'm just going to take that again because I hit the mic. From my perspective, there. There genuinely is stuff that I really, really love and that I could definitely see working in all three. But I also have there. There are some holes in these donuts um, <laughs> in all three. Um, so to, to go in order um, that Jordan, frankly, the the coincidence of Marta being like, I'm going to pay for you to go on holiday. I'll send you to this random little B&B. There you go. Go there. Oh, and I've bought you a ticket for Othello. Oh, and by the way, Sean Bean's there. He's going to die. <laughs> and like the, the, the coincidence of that really stood out to me. But the, I, I really did enjoy the casting. I liked the idea of Idris Elba showing up. Although again, like... The fact that the police would be like, oh, yeah, yeah, uh, we don't care. If they don't care, like, if, if it looks like a suicide, why would they send Idris Elba? Uh, and, like, there's a few there's a few things that don't quite jive, but there is, like, I love, I, I'm, I grew up doing Amdram, and so this speaks deeply, intimately to my soul, and I was picturing this entire thing happening in the Barn Theatre in Wellin, which is where I used to perform, which, as it happens, is the amateur theatre where they shot Hot Fuzz. Um, and so, like, it, it spoke to me on a deeply personal level, but those those bits of dissonance, there would have to be 
a reason for there would have to be more of a reason for it to tie in for me it was felt too random that he showed up there andy as jordan said the idea of this basically being a real time murder mystery wicked really cool idea um uh, Matthew McConaughey as the brother is inspired. Oh yeah. Um, Henry Winkler as the mayor turning out to be not as not as nice as he seems is another really good piece of casting. Um, although all of these actors in their thirties and forties having close personal and, and occasionally intimate relationships with what eighty five year old Henry have Winkler. You Henry? Yeah, have you seen him? <laughs> yeah, I have <laughs> seen yeah, him. Yeah, yeah. But like you can still make the fonts could get in. Yeah, happy days. I, you're talking, uh, Andy. How many of your friends are in their seventies? Oh, I could count them on at least you know, no hands. Yeah, um, exactly. There's like I I can see where you're going with it, and and yeah, Henry Winkler is a great casting choice. But then the, all the sort of young hip actors that you've chosen to play those other roles, I wouldn't feel like work. There's also there i like that there was a reason for blanc to be there and tied into it but then the actual the motive of it of of the brother doing it to frame him he's he wants him to be taken down for the crime but then to be put in witness protection so that his brother can go with him and that it that doesn't work so that would that would need to change because like that just if he if he he's trying to frame him for it so that he does get sentenced but then put in wit witsec rather than going to prison and and it starts to fall apart a little bit when you get to the end um matt i like i i did not expect it to carry straight on and i was as soon as you said it was carrying straight on i was i actually got a little warm nostalgic like ah oh, these characters are back and that made me quite happy um and I like the, I like the sort of, as Jordan said, artistically the idea of going for another genre. I think is a cool, is a cool idea. Um, although I'm not sure. I, I think that because he is the private detective, I I don't know. I don't know how I would feel about that. And then there's also the thing of you never quite explained what Blanc actually was getting Meg, unless I missed it, I didn't understand what Meg was doing. Like, why Blanc sent Meg to walk in an alleyway and what he was expecting to catch on that camera exactly there. Do you mind answering that for me? Um, It was me realising I was on my third page already, so started to speed up my wrap-up at this point, so I was trying to fill two acts into half a page like I yeah, usually come out do. The script. You know, it's what I it's what I do best. Um I think he he pulls her in because he realizes he can use someone that lives with Marta uh to his advantage. She really wants to help Marta and, you know, make sure that Ransom doesn't get to her. So he enlists her purely as a doppelganger. So Marta is, what I didn't really explain is Marta's sending everything that she receives to uh, Benoit, including one of them, which is this address, this street address. So Benoit takes that, gets Meg to go there at the allotted time, and he's in the background. But it's also quick that he's not able to react in time to prevent anything. So she is the victim of circumstance. All right. 
but the whole idea of Lady Luck is Meg is the lucky one. She's born with it. Mm. She's stabbed, but nothing happens. Uh, Ransom is the one that, you know, no matter how much he strives for it, he's just not lucky in life in that way. And Benoit is the one where he just takes whatever he can. So the idea is that the three, when, when you see it in the first shot, you go, right, so she's the unlucky one. Ransom is the lucky one. Who's the third? Yeah. But each time it plays out and then you finally reveal that it's it not the case. Okay. All right, cool. Thank you. Um, yeah, that, that, do, that does clear it up a bit, but it is still, yeah, I'm, it feels a bit complex. So my conundrum now then is to look at these three, which all have some really cool ideas to them and go, what would require the least amount of changing for for it to 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 fix those issues that I I personally I'm not the arbiter of all all things quality. Other people may well disagree with me, but what what requires the least changing, or what what of those three structures of story and ideas would make the film that I would want to watch the most? Um, and. As soon as I put it like that, I'm I'm afraid that I have to. I'm not afraid to say that I have to, but I've got to say it's Jordan. <laughs> Fuck. What? No. Come off it, man. We were never gonna beat eat Sean Bean dying. Eat shit. Eat shit. Eat shit. You eat shit. You eat shit. You eat shit. You eat shit. Yeah, I like genuinely the um, Andy the the real time murder mystery is a is a quality idea it's really really good matt i think it's the first time i've said this it it i i i couldn't follow what what or i couldn't quite follow exactly what exactly was going on and i think the point that it robs the end of the first film that andy made is is correct like it it does it it does take a bit of the power away from that and it doesn't have as much room for the comedy and charm that the other two both seem to have where Jordan's, I think it, it definitely does need to be less of a coincidence that he's there for some reason, like just Marta threw a dart at a map and was like, go there. And then, a, and then a complicated murder happens, but like it was a close run thing. And I really genuinely mean it. There was stuff in all three that I really did like. Right, and well, on that note then, Jordan, if you fancy coming back for the next recording, what film should we all pitch sequels for? Well, I mean, I suppose I've got nothing better to do, so I might drop <laughs> might drop by, who knows. But uh, oh, no, I would, I would personally be uh, very interested in finding out what what you guys might expect to happen in a sequel to Spider-Man Far From Home, perhaps. Oh, shit. Oh, so excited for this. Just in time for No Way Home as well. This was in no way planned or pre-decided. Absolutely not. No Way Planned was the alternate title for... (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Excellent. Well, yep, we we will be back next time with Jordan again for... Spider-Man Far From Home review and sequel pitching. So that is 
it. Um, like we said earlier, if anyone fancies it, we're not expecting it at this point. But if you want to reach out on Twitter and tell me I made a mistake or give some love to the, our pictures, give give them some love. Tell them what you liked. We want to be positive. Tell Put some positivity out in the world or just give us a five star review or maybe a four star. Like we'll accept three, nothing below three on Apple Podcasts. That would be great. Thanks very much. Two star still um, counts. And so... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, too, it does. It does still count, but you know, if 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 you don't like it, then hopefully you've not listened to thirty episodes to hear us ask this. So there you go. <laughs> um, so we'll say um, first off a very very big thank you and goodbye from our guest and winner this week, Jordan King. Thank you very Woo-hoo. much. Thanks for having me, guys. It's always a pleasure. Um, a very big thank you and goodbye from admirable runner-up number one, Andy Henry. Goodbye. See you next week. Whip, whip, flip. That was me Spider-Maning. Sorry. You obviously won't see a podcast, people listening, but I was making Spider-Man with my, with my hands. Uh, I love it. He was wanky. And uh, goodbye. Uh, a very big thank you and goodbye from admirable runner-up number two, Mr. Matthew Rushton. I just have one thing to say. <clears throat> Sometimes in life, no matter how hard you work... <laughs> How many sequel ideas you dig up? There's just something bigger at play. Sean Bean dying in a movie. <laughs> and goodbye from me. Bye. <laughs>